Welcome back, everybody, to What Really Matters. I'm Tablet Deputy Editor Jeremy Stern with you in Los Angeles. I'm here, as always, with Walter Russell Mead, Tablet News Writer, Global View Columnist at The Wall Street Journal, and Distinguished Fellow at Hudson. Let's start with this week's news, picked again from The Scroll, Tablet's daily afternoon newsletter. First story of the week. The UN Refugee Agency for Palestinians, several of whose employees cheered Hamas's October 7th attack on Israel, claims that it will have to stop delivering humanitarian aid unless Israel agrees to provide fuel to Gaza, just weeks after announcing that Hamas was stealing fuel and medical equipment from the agency's compound. The agency, which received $344 million in funding from the U.S. in 2022, said it will be forced to seize operations if it does not receive more fuel immediately. Israel is currently allowing the delivery of food, water, and medicine to Gaza, but draws the line at fuel, which it fears will be diverted to support Hamas's war effort. So the eminent UN Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees in the Near East, Walter, is what it does and doesn't do, news or faux news? I'd say it's old news. If there's anybody around who uh, doesn't understand that uh, UNRWA has long since um, more or less been absorbed by various Palestinian resistance movements, uh, they haven't been paying attention. It's not necessarily, you know, in the abstract, a terrible thing. Uh, you know, an organization that's going to be serving a population of refugees uh, is over time going to draw a lot of its people from that that group. But it is definitely true that over the years, UNRWA has, uh, has really been assimilated into what you might call the resistance camp. All right, our second story. An overwhelming majority of Israeli Arabs oppose Hamas's attacks on Israel, according to a recent poll. The survey found that 80% of Israeli Arabs oppose the attacks, 85% oppose Hamas's kidnapping of civilians, 66% support Israel's right to defend itself, and 50% believe the attacks were, quote, contrary to the values of Islam. Arabs make up about 21% of Israel's population, and at least 18 Israeli Arabs were killed in the October 7th attacks. The attitude of Arab Israelis, the vast majority of whom are Muslim, stands in contrast to the attitude of young Americans. According to an October 23rd Harvard-Harris poll, half of Americans aged 18 to 34 believe the Hamas attacks, quote, can be justified by the grievances of Palestinians, close quote. Walter, is all this news or phone news? I'm always suspicious of polls that ask very specific questions. I remember once uh, during the, all the, the big fights we used to have over uh, the Contras in Nicaragua, Kissinger uh, was looking it up and he found a poll that uh, something like only 10% of Americans could tell that the difference between Nicaragua and Norway. So I wouldn't, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of hand-wringing going on around right now. And certainly, you know, some of the signs we've seen of quite vicious and bitter anti-Semitism erupting in all kinds of places where certainly all of us hoped you wouldn't see that, have drawn a lot of people into a a sense of real despair and fear. I think on top of that, a statistic like like the one in that poll, you know, just fills people with a sense of doom. I think we should wait and see. It's interesting that older Americans who tend to have been around the maybe a little bit better informed have seen these things come and go there. The support for Israel is really pretty strong. So yeah, there's a kind of anti-establishment, don't take things for granted among young people. But let's also not forget that thanks in part to COVID, this is the least educated 
group of young people that the United States has seen in, in a generation or more. It's not their fault. They didn't do this, but they've been deprived of key years of schooling. So I think we have to wait and see how it all works out. But it, it's not good news, but I'm not really sure yet that it's big news. On the point about the opinions of, uh, of Muslim Arabs who live in Israel, I remember in a, in a much older episode of What Really Matters when we were talking about the Scottish national movement and how the one group of opinions that they never seem to take into account were Scottish people who live in England and benefit from union. And it kind of reminds me of, you know, the one group of people whose opinions about either Zionism or just the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in general, the, the ones you never hear about are the Arab Muslims who live in Israel and presumably, you know, benefit enough from their lives in Israel to not want to move out. Well, I don't know about not wanting to move. There'd be a lot of reasons why you wouldn't want to move out, including this is where all your family lives and everybody who you know. But it is, I, I don't think we should romanticize how happy Arab Israelis are. And I think, you know, th there have been some pretty troubling signs over the years of, a, of an increasing rather than a decreasing alienation. So let's not whitewash that. But at the same time, um, you can really, really, really not like Netanyahu and the Zionist right, and also really not like masked paragliders who, who might at any moment drop in and massacre you and your family. All right, fair enough. Final story of the week. Senior White House officials have been leading ethnically segregated listening sessions to reassure staffers that they are supported, according to a report in Politico. The news follows several reports in the Huffington Post last week about White House diplomatic and national security staffers feeling stifled by the Biden administration's public support for Israel, with one administration official blaming Biden's stance on the fact that his inner circle is, quote, not at all diverse. To address those concerns, the White House has in recent days held segregated small group listening sessions for Jewish staffers on the one hand and Muslim, Arab and Palestinian staffers on the other as well as several larger meetings, quote, featuring in-depth discussions about the crisis and its effect on the lives of White House aides, close quote. Walter, news or phone news? Horrible news, but not so much horrible. The reason it's horrible is how did all of these whiny, immature people get jobs working in senior positions? Of course, some of them are not particularly senior, I think we can assume. But uh, really, I hate to break this to any of our listeners who, who, who may not be aware of it, but your boss is not your mother. Your boss is not your therapist. Your job is not a place you go to feel good. It's a place you go to do the job, particularly when you're working for a democratic government. Your job as a government official is to do what you're told. You're not there to make policy. You are there, unless you're extremely senior, to execute policy and to execute it as well as you can. Now, there may come times when you really feel that a policy that you're asked to uh, execute is immoral. Well, in that case, you can ask to change your assignment. You can resign as a last resort but you really have no business saying, I, as an employee who no one ever elected to anything, have the right to tell the elected representatives of the American people what they can and can't do. So I'm afraid if anybody like that was in my office, um, I would say, well, I'm really sorry that you're not here, but this will probably, it'll probably, then it probably won't feel so bad to you that you're fired. Now, did I sound enough like a mean old boomer? 
All right, that does it for the news this week. Let's have the big conversation. So zooming out a bit, Walter, or quite a bit, I should say, it's clear that there are very few issues in American foreign policy, maybe no other issue, that has dominated the consciousness of American presidential administrations as much as the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has. And as you write about in The Ark of a Covenant, which is now out in paperback, just an astonishing amount of political capital, diplomatic capital, financial resources, and just sheer time and manpower has been focused on achieving an almost impossibly narrow objective. And yet there's close to nothing to show for it, right? And we're talking decades, multiple transitions of power in Washington, the major American political parties undergoing multiple ideological conversions, electing chief executives of very different persuasions. And they all beat their heads against the same problem. And yet here we are at the end of 2023, and we seem further away from reconciliation than ever. So what what is the story here? You know, it is a really complicated problem, but you're absolutely right. You know, and even before the Americans got into it, and really every president since Harry Truman has tried to hard, Franklin Roosevelt actually uh, met with uh, the king of Saudi Arabia to try to figure out what a solution would be. Winston Churchill tried and failed to solve this problem. And yet, Secretary of State after Secretary of State, president after president, keeps sort of trotting in to, you know, like, uh, you know, I'll be the one, I'll, I'll, I'll be the one to get the Holy Grail. So why is it so hard? You could say at one level, it's just because it's, we can blame it all on God. He did not make enough holy land. The, the land that people care the most intensely about, there's, there's not enough of it for both of them, both sides to get what they want. But in thinking about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, you have to look at it uh, in two ways. One is you have to realize how similar it is to a lot of other conflicts around the world and how, in fact, when we look at those other conflicts around the world, most of them don't get solved either. Uh, These national conflicts, two peoples, each group of people has a sense of where their state should be, what its boundaries should be. You know, we've just, in the, in the last month, we've seen 100,000 Armenians flee the enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh in, in uh, Azerbaijan. That's not a bad example of, of these kinds of ethnic conflicts because, the, you know, for actually hundreds of years, Armenians and Turks and Azerbaijanis are really very closely related to Turks— Live together more, and Kurds live together more or less in peace every now and then a little bit of trouble under the Ottoman Empire. But in the waning decades of the Ottoman Empire, as central authority grew weak, you started to see outbursts of greater violence. You saw pogroms against Armenians. They were Christian. Uh, they were suspected of not being loyal to the empire, et cetera, et cetera, culminating in the horrible genocide of, uh, that took place during World War I. Uh, Turks say it wasn't a genocide. Well, you know, in that case, what we have is 1.5 million people died of mysterious causes. Nevertheless, there were a lot fewer Armenians at the end of World War I than there'd been going into it. 
And then the Soviet Union comes along, and it takes over the Caucasus where modern Armenia and Azerbaijan are, and it puts them both under a deep freeze. And basically for the 80 years of Soviet rule, there isn't an Armenian-Azerbaijani problem. They actually, they intermarry, they sort of all, you know, it, it disappears from politics. But when the Soviet Union weakens almost immediately, these things pop up again. And this is now the second major war that we've seen between these two countries since the end of, of the Cold War. And, and there may be more to come. We saw something similar in Yugoslavia with the Croats, the Serbs, the Bosnians, and so on, where, again, they're under when the Ottoman Empire was strong, they kept them all under a fist. The Ottoman Empire weakened. You began to see ethnic conflict breaking out there. Then Tito came along, and again, the Iron Fist kept everybody quiet. They all they, they intermarried. People weren't even that aware whether you were a Croat or a Serb. You didn't, you know, my mom's a Croat, my father's a Serb, whatever. But then when Tito died and Yugoslavia, you know, there was no strong hand, the ethnic rivalries pop up again, the hostilities pop up again, and within a very few years, you have horrible genocidal wars. These wars are usually much, much worse than typical wars because they're wars of peoples. So that, um, you know, if it's going to be who, who lives, who owns this valley, the Armenians or the Azerbaijanis, you want to drive the other people out or kill them so that it's yours. And you feel, and you feel in your gut that if they win, they'll do that to you. So typically a cabinet war, as people call them, where it's, it's sort of emperors and generalissimos and people like that. And when Frederick the Great attacked Silesia, Right, the peasants in Silesia didn't really care who won that war. You know, Maria Theresa, the Empress, Frederick the Great, the King, blah 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 blah. Whoever is ruling, you're going to get taxed roughly the same. It just doesn't matter that much. What you hope in the war is that it won't come anywhere close to you. But wars of people are very, very different. We often forget how much ethnic cleansing and dispossession there's been in the Middle East and East and Central Europe in the last, say, 150 years or so, that um, roughly 2 million Jews were driven or fled out of Russia. Roughly the same number of Muslims were actually driven or fled out of Russia. People talk about the Circassian genocide of Muslims in the Caucasus under czarist rule. You had all kinds of wars in the Balkans. Again, if you go back to Europe in the 1870s, you'd see sort of four big empires controlling you know, everything from the Rhine River through the whole Middle East out into Russia. Today, those big Austro-Hungarian Empire, Ottoman Empire, Russian Empire, German Empire, those empires are broken up. And now you have these mostly mono-ethnic, monocultural states. And yet, even in all of those where there's an ethnic minority, that's been a point of conflict all along. So in this sense, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, in its ferocity, in its sense that both sides have their own vision of justice and see their cause at the moral center of the universe. 
That is simply what you'll find if you go to Romania, you go to Bulgaria, you go to Greece and ask about the Turks, or to Turkey and ask about the Greeks, Armenia, Azerbaijan. For that matter, you can go to Myanmar and ask about the Rohingya. And these conflicts almost never end in peaceful compromise. Oh, yes, I see. We could fight forever. But instead, let's make a deal. I don't get everything I want. You don't get everything you want. But we're both better off than if we keep fighting each other. It's beautiful. It's lovely. But it almost never happens in real life. What happens is an outside power imposes a peace, like a parent going you know, in a car, turning back and saying to the kids, I don't care who started it. It's, I'm gonna, you, I want it to stop now. <laughs> and if the kids think that mom and dad really mean that, they will stop. Although, honestly, if they think mom and dad don't mean it, they'll keep picking at each other. So here's the thing. In all of our peace process diplomacy, America, which was the dominant power in the Middle East after the end of the Cold War, the one thing we were never really willing to do was to be that kind of power, to go in and just say, I don't care what's right, I don't care what's wrong, here's the line, anybody crosses it, I shoot them, now shut up. We weren't willing to be in Israel-Palestine, what the Soviet Union was in Armenia and Azerbaijan, or what Tito was in Yugoslavia. And I can't say that was, that's wrong. I don't, you know, I don't actually think that that is America's job or that we would, that we would do it well if we were called on to do it. But in the absence of that, in the absence of an outside power which is able to impose a peace, the chances of peace have never been that good. I mean, it's, you know, the kind of tragic element in in what you just said is you think, you know, okay, so if the possible conditions for peaceful coexistence are like multi-ethnic, multi-confessional empires, those are all gone, an ethnically homogenous nation state, but to get to that point requires a degree of ethnic cleansing and genocide that the U.S. would never put its support behind, or the U.S. being willing to assert itself as a hegemonic power. And as you said, anyone who crosses the lines it lays down, you know, gets slapped back immediately. If, if none of those three conditions are possible or able to be met, it seems like the only kinds of policies we're willing to support are ones that are going to, by necessity, perpetuate the conflict rather than ever solve it. Is that right? Well... I mean, you know, there is a difference between curing someone of cancer and shooting them because they have cancer. Um, you know, <laughs> you, 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 you can manage diseases that can't be cured. And I think that to the extent that we've had some successes, um, you know, we had done a fairly good job. But one thing that I think people on uh, both the right and the left in America often don't understand is that our influence over the Israelis and the Palestinians has nothing to do with the brilliance of our ideas or the, the power of uh, the beauty of our ideals or the shining example of our virtues. First of all, neither the Israelis nor the Palestinians think that there were any good at any of those things. They're quite cynical about us, and rationally so. Uh, but at the same time, 
Uh, and so, so what do we have influence? We have influence when it looks like we're the dominant power in the Middle East, and it's dangerous to mess with the United States. And so one of the weird things I think we saw under the Obama administration was that even as the Obama administration was basically trying to get out of the Middle East, it was increasing its pressure or trying to increase its pressure on Israelis and Palestinians to make compromises that neither side wanted in order because it really wanted peace. You can't do it. If you're going to withdraw, your influence is going to diminish. That's a choice that you make. And it's a very rational choice that the United States might, might rationally make. Let's reduce our footprint in the Middle East. Let's have less to do with all of this. But at that point, you have to understand that everyone pays less attention to you now because you're not prepared to offer them anything if they, if they do what you want. And they don't fear any punishment or sanctions, really, if they don't do what you want. And so as we've moved out of the Middle East, what we see is a Middle East which more and more, where more and more everyone just gleefully thumbs their nose at the United States. Countries that have traditionally been aligned with us, whether it's Israel or Saudi Arabia, have felt much less deference in normal times. Wartime is a little different right now, but basically m- declining amounts of deference. And our enemies— the Iranians and others also worry less about us and feel it's a little safer to to take a pot shot at the Americans when you feel like it. And, And this is the dilemma, in a sense, the United States faces. If we get in deeper in the Middle East, we will not, we're not prepared to get in deep enough to really try to remake the region. Uh, We learned that lesson in Iraq, but we knew it before. And at the same time, um, the region is so important to our interests that we can't ignore it completely. So it's basically for us, for the Israelis and the Palestinians, it's all about living with unhappiness, that there's no easy way to fix it or get out of it or transform it. For Americans, that is, that's really not a place we like to be. But unfortunately, the name of that place is reality. And we're in it whether we like it or not. All right, that does it for the big conversation. Let's end on the tip of the week. You visited Israel many times, Walter, in the West Bank too. It may be a while before our listeners get to or want to visit as tourists again, but ending here on a more hopeful note by looking forward to the day when people will feel safe enough to do so. What's your number one travel tip for visiting each, Israel proper and the West Bank too? Well, I, I, I want to put in just a little word for Gaza. The first time I actually went to Israel was to go to Gaza, uh, where I was meeting with Yasser Arafat. Um, I probably told you about the night Yasser Arafat kissed me. He didn't just kiss me, by the way. This is pretty serious. He gave me a back rub, too. What happened was, uh, you know, we had a meeting— uh, And at the end of the meeting, the participants got together for a photograph. Arafat was not all that tall. Uh, He's a very charismatic guy, but he was not a tall guy. And what he liked to do in pictures was to have people sitting down in the front and then a row of people standing. And the row of people standing didn't tend to be the tallest people in the room necessarily. But anyways, as it all came out, I just happened to be sitting in the chair 
directly in front of where he was standing. And as everybody's getting ready and organized, I start feeling his thumbs giving me a massage in, in my shoulder blades. And honestly, he was good. <laughs> it was <laughs> it was really kind of relaxing. And at, at the end, after the picture was taken and everything, he, he bent down and just very, very sweetly kissed me on the top of the head. So Gaza, to me, is not just a place of bombs and, uh, <laughs> and terrorism and so on. I, I actually do have some fond memories. And we, we spent the day in Gaza, and you know, people were friendly. Um, you know, it was a very different time. It was early, sometime in the 1990s. Uh, but I don't recommend it as a tourist, top tourist destination, unless you get the- Yeah, I feel confident in saying our listeners will not be able to replicate your experience for multiple reasons. <laughs> exactly. So for, t- for tourism, look, I think the old city of Jerusalem and the sites in and around Jerusalem are one of those things that uh, you just have to see if you can. It's It really should be in everybody's bucket list. The, the Muslim shrines, the Christian shrines, the Jewish shrines are all amazing. The archaeological ruins it had, the Israel, the, the National Museum is, is a stunning collection. Probably the most disappointing thing, site in Israel are the government offices. The prime minister's office is one of the sort of dingiest, drabbest things you'll ever hope to see. And I, you know, I, maybe I shouldn't say this, I'm not a fan of the Knesset. The, the architecture of the Knesset. Now, I'm sometimes not a fan of the laws that come out of the Knesset, but that's that's different. <laughs> uh, and then in, you know, if you think about the West Bank, uh, I mean, the Jordan River is is great to see. Although, you know, these days it pretty much practically dries up in the summer because there's so much agricultural use. Right. So if you want to imitate the children of Israel walking dry shod across the Jordan, um, the river won't be a barrier. It's possible that the Jordanian border guards on the other side would would present an obstacle. <laughs> uh, but I think t- I really, really like Jericho. Uh, it, it, it's a very ancient city. There are ruins there that are something like 10,000 years old that date before the pyramids in Egypt. And the city has been continuously inhabited. And it's all about these these springs of water that come up uh, there, and very pure and clear water. And to see all of that and to see how nature has formed this kind of civilizational entity that has lasted for thousands of years is is um, is remarkable. It really is, and you see the Judean hills, the mountains to your west, and you look east and toward the river and the sort of Jordan beyond. It's really it's really something to see. There's a casino which I have to say I've never quite gambled in, but there also certainly for Christian tourists there are a lot of great uh, places there. And you get a sense some of the some of the most interesting gospel stories are told about Jericho and Jesus's visits there. You get a real sense of the place, and it's and I and I recommend it. All right, there you have it. Thanks to our producer Noam Bloom and Will Cummings at Hudson. Thanks to my co-host Walter Russell Mead. I'm Jeremy Stern. We'll see you next time. <laughs>